This is Israeli Technology Founders Speak, a podcast of conversations with successful Israeli high-tech and biotech entrepreneurs, with your host, Avraham Hermon. Dr. Ilan Samish is the founder and CEO of Amai Proteins, an Israeli food tech startup that has developed the first sugar substitute that tastes just like sugar by redesigning sweet proteins found in the jungle and producing them for mass consumption. Dr. Samish took decades of academic knowledge and used it to found this innovative and unique startup, which is funded by major businesses and VC firms and has won multiple startup awards around the world. Avraham sat down with Ilan in the offices of Amai Proteins to discuss how the business got started, how Ilan built his team, developed his business relationships, found production facilities, got funding for the startup, his tips for startup founders, and much more. This podcast is a creation of J.M.B. Davis Ben David, an intellectual property law firm Serving clients around the world, you have great innovations. We keep them safe. It's not enough to just have a great startup idea or innovation. If you don't legally protect your innovations, products, and brand, anyone can claim them as their own. We keep your great innovation secure. Learn more by going to jmbdavis.com. That's jmbdavis.com. Good afternoon. Thank you, Dr. Elon Samish for taking the time to host me here in your offices. And uh, I would privileged to have tasted your products. We are 100% protein. We are a, what is a protein? A protein is a necklace of beads called amino acids. And you have short proteins, which are called sometimes peptides. You have long proteins. And within the 20 types of amino acids, you can make a necklace in different sizes and then they fall to a 3D structure and the structure is what confers function. So what we did is to have a new novel protein which we designed and then we biomanufacture it by yeast. We train the yeast to produce a protein and excrete it out of the yeast to the medium and then we separate between the filtrate and the yeast just like you do with filtered beer. Actually our Fermenter is just like a brewery, and then we filter out the protein. So this is what's called precision fermentation, and then we spray dry it, and at the end of the day, we have a white powder, which makes people happy. Activates, by the way, the same places in our brains, the nucleus accumbens and others, which is just like other white powders, but in our case, it's a healthy and tasty and sweet and good for you and even kosher white powder which can replace up to 70% of the added sugar without compromising taste. Wow. I just tasted something, and I think that if you were to tell me that it didn't have sugar and it has less sugar than the usual product, I would be surprised. And indeed, I'm surprised because I can't tell the difference between the regular sugar-filled product and this product. So so indeed, with every product, we reduce the sugar till finding the sweet spot. And excuse me for the pun. Yeah. And you tasted first the cranberry juice, and now you're tasting some marzipan. The marzipan has 70% less added sugar. And the idea is that between the full sugar product and the reduced sugar product, you will not be able to find the difference between the two. So why not 100% less sugar? Why not cut out the sugar entirely? So when you're good, people ask you, 
why aren't you amazing? We think we're already amazing because there is no other sweetener that can reduce above 30% sugar without compromising the taste, the cost, the health, not to mention sustainability and a full sensory profile. What we do is we look on where we can reduce the maximum amount without compromising taste. Now, there are here two components. Number one, sugar is not only about sweetening. Sugar is also about what gives you the mouthfeel. The mouthfeel is ionic strength of the water, of the food matrix. And this is something that in diet drinks, you have what is called a thin taste and not a round taste, which you have following the sugar. That's something that we cannot give. And for that, we need a small amount of sugar. An additional thing is that sugar has a linear dose response, meaning that when you move from 1% to 2% or from 11 to 12%, it's all a linear. 1% of sugar will give you one sweetness unit. While in all other sweetening agents, you have a hyperbolic curve, meaning that above a certain amount, you need more material for every unit of sweetness. And above a certain amount, it's very hard to sweeten. And indeed, if you go to the store and look on no sugar or sugar-reduced products, most of them have more than one sweetener or more than one sugar-reducing agent in order to synergistically give you the best solution. And yet, while the diet market exists for many, many years, it is still a very small market because we love the delicious taste of full sugar. And that's our main goal, not to compromise on the delicious taste of full sugar, but from the other side, reduce a significant amount of the sugar. Amazing. So there's really a lot that goes behind when we taste something sweet. And it's a lot more than than people think. It's not just the sweetness and the chemistry, it's the texture and the mouthfeel and all that. So slowly but surely, as we go through this podcast, I'll be tasting the various eight different foods. In How was the marzipan you just tasted? Marzipan was good. I don't eat marzipan all that much, but this is this was good. It tasted sweet. It tasted like I remember tasting marzipan. I'm also a home brewer, so I have experience with fermentation. I know I know what you're talking about in terms of yeast, but here you're using very special yeast that you direct to make very unique proteins. Let me ask you, I made a mistake of calling these artificial sweeteners. Now I understand they're not artificial sweeteners, but other sweeteners in the past have gotten a lot of bad press. And uh, what do you do to make sure that you're not going to get that same sort of reaction from the public of, you know, saccharin, there are studies that show it's carcinogen and, and the like. How do people react to your sweeteners? So our swilling, swilling is the first product with which we are going to the market. And it's a convergence of the word sweet and monelin. Monelin is a protein which inspired us in order to design by the computer using AI CPD computational protein designed to design swilling. So our product is 100% protein. And we have conducted very extensive consumer studies in Israel by Amai, in France by Danon, in the US by PepsiCo, and then with the University of Aarhus with some EU funding in Germany, Poland, and Denmark. And we try to ask the consumers, what are you looking for? What are you fearing for? And all the consumers loved the fact that we are 100% proteins because proteins are good for you. And if we ask what can go bad with a protein, well, you have a tiny amount of proteins which are toxic, like snake venom, and you have a tiny amount which are allergenic. So as part of getting the regulatory approvals, and in Q2 we will have a regulatory approval in the United States, we have proved 
that our protein is fully digestible in the upper gastrointestinal tract, that it has no allergenicity whatsoever, it's actually hypoallergenic, that it has no toxicity, and that we use a small amounts because our sweetener is on average 3.4 thousand times, 3,400 times sweeter than sugar. So one kilogram of our protein replaces 3.4 tons of sugar, or in other words, every pound of our sweetener replaces two tons of sugar. Consequently, we can also be cheaper than sugar in sweetness units. Wow. Cheaper than sugar. Cheaper than I sugar. Can go, go buy a kilo of sugar for about a dollar or maybe three and a half shekels or so. So actually 1,000 kilos, one ton of sugar cost in the factory door, not, in, not, not when you go to buy one packet cost between $400 and $1,000 around the world. It's now, since COVID, it's a differential price around the world. If one kilogram of what we make replaces 3.4 tons of sugar, meaning that we one kilogram replaces $1,500 of worth of sugar, then we can make it significantly cheaper as to production and compete with the price of sugar when it comes to sweetness units. So tell me a little bit about how you're planning on marketing this. And you had mentioned collaborations that you have with uh, international companies in Europe and the US. And are you going to be selling your product directly to consumers or to manufacturers? So indeed, we have uh, recurrent fee-bearing agreements and some joint collaboration through non-dilutive funding with a few companies like PepsiCo, Danon, Ocean Spray, Mars Wrigley, and other companies that I'm not allowed to disclose. And they all love our product and just wait to get it in a after the regulatory clearance, which will be in Q2, and also after getting a large scale. And we're beginning actually next week to do 20,000 liters of uh, production of the product. So if we want to go quickly and we want to be big, the fragmented food chain includes the ingredient sector, which is mainly B2B. And we plan to focus on B2B and to work with the CPGs, the consumer packaged good companies, which are the companies we know that in order to get it to every household. In parallel, as part of demonstrating how good we are, we are also planning some B2C launches to show the um, consumers and to show the big companies how good we are and what amazing traction we get from consumers. And who's your market in terms of down the road? Like what sort of uh, population is going to be buying your product? Is it just any regular? So our market is every person on planet Earth, period. If we look today on what is the number one non-communicable disease, non-pathogenic health threat of our planet, by far it is sugar. There is nothing bigger. In 2017, the Pure study was published in Lancet, scanning 350,000 people along seven years with very clear conclusions that sugar is the number one public enemy, just like tobacco at the time. Sugar underlies a metabolic syndrome, obesity, diabetes, fatty liver disease, epithelial cancers like colon cancer, pancreatic cancer, breast cancer, not to mention tooth decay and other things. And from the other side, you spoke before about high-intensity sweeteners. Just uh, a month ago, in the very prestigious magazine Cell, there was a paper showing that the commonly used high-intensity sweeteners alter your microbiome, the kilogram of bugs that we all have in our digestive system, and also cause a uh, delayed glycemic response, meaning a pre-diabetic condition. So 
Today, the existing high-intensity sweeteners, which are most of the market of replacing sugar, are not only not tasty, but they're also not so good for you. And we are working together synergistically with some of them. We're not saying no to anyone, and, and most of them are better or less bad than sugar. But definitely, it's the first time that we have something which on one hand activates a sweet receptor just like sugar, but on the other hand, once it goes into our body, is very quickly digested into its amino acid components, unlike all the other sweeteners, which are small molecules, which continue to activate the sweet receptor, which lines our digestive tract, and then have adverse effects with the microbiome, liver, and kidneys. Okay, interesting. And this is digested just like any other protein? It's digested quickly in the duodenum, just like any other protein, and we show that with the most sophisticated methods in order to prove to the regulatory authorities that we are completely safe to use. We are a protein, 100% protein, made solely by the constituents of proteins, amino acids, and our body actually cuts the protein by enzymes called proteases into amino acids. I want with this also to say something where people won't be uh, mistaken, we don't really give nutritional value. And that is because we replace every teaspoon of sugar with one to two milligrams of the protein. So we really give minuscule amounts. That's also why we can be so cheap. And also we don't have the issue like sugar that 180 million tons are transported every year with a big carbon footprint, not to mention the deforestation and the fact that sugar is grown today. Sugar cane and beets on a land bigger than the UK. So we have a lot of sustainability advantages. So we are not only good for our health, we're also good for a little blue planet. So you're saying that you're a healthcare company, really, because you're involved in prevention of diseases and you're also an environmental company because you're in- involved in preventing, cutting down tropical rainforests and the like. Definitely, we are a healthcare company. When I opened Amai, it was after I published what became the main book in the field of computational protein design, and I had the dilemma whether I want to design proteins for medical use or for food, and I thought that my impact on planet Earth and on humanity, if I solve the sugar issue, will be much bigger than if I invent a new drug. But Amai is not only about sweeteners, what we know how to make is designer proteins, and we have in our pipeline other designer proteins for the milk, meat, and plant industry. Just a word about sustainability. Amai won the Extreme Tech Challenge. Extreme Tech, Amai is, is uh, as far as I know, is the most awarded startup company in the world that I know. And we have tons of trophies and we won many competitions. But the biggest one is the Extreme Tech Challenge, the biggest startup competition on planet Earth. 2,000 startups, 20 regional competitions around the world, 10 categories was endorsed by Richard Branson, Young Son, the former president of Samsung, Bill Tai, investor in Zoom, and many others. In the finals, uh, Bill Gates and others were. We not only won the food ag category, but we actually are the grand winner of the 2022 competition out of 2,000 startups. Amazing. They are measured by four criterias, market disruption, fitness to market, strength of the team, and the 17 sustainability development goals of the United Nations. So we are definitely a high-impact healthcare um, company. So we heard a lot about the idea, but where did it come from? How did it start? I see your book is here about computational protein design. Maybe you can uh, expand on that a little bit. 
So I have a pretty uh, unique background and um, unique is, is the other side of the coin of weird. So you decide whether my background is weird or unique. I don't have a bachelor degree. I actually studied in the Adi Lautman interdisciplinary program for fostering excellence at the Tel Aviv University where 15 students out of the 10,000 that go every year are told to study whatever you want with whatever course you can begin first year and third year courses as long as you cannot study by a regular curricula. I studied uh, sciences. I did most of the MBA, which I never finished. And I began already in the first year to work as an assistant in labs, in uh, the lab of, of uh, physical organic chemistry and uh, a joint project with the lab of uh, molecular uh, biotechnology and microbiology. And after three years there, I went to the Weizmann Institute, did my PhD, went to a postdoc in the University of Pennsylvania with a guy who invented the field of protein design and then went back to academia. I was a lecturer and a, a PI at the Browder College, and I taught at the Weizmann and at the Hebrew University, courses ranging from biology, genetics, biochemistry, and to uh, physical chemistry and to computer science, AI and ML methods in, in computational biology. I was a founder and co-chair of the main meeting in the field of structural computational biology. So with this long uh, introduction, after my postdoc in which I worked on protein design, I thought that many people are talking the talk about designing new proteins, but very few people have walked the walk and successfully designed proteins which were experimentally verified. And I began to look on these proteins, and out of that came what is today the main book in computational protein design. And this is the name of the book, which has over 70,000 downloads, which is quite a lot for such a book. And after doing that, as I show in, in uh, page 83 of my book, um, very few people in the world were successful in doing such designs. Um, when the book went out in 2017, there were only 101 successful designer proteins. And in all of them, you needed the synergy between the computational methods, the bio computational biophysics, bioinformatics, and also the experimental methods in biotechnology and the bioassay. And then for the first time in my life, I couldn't sleep because I thought, I have this amazing method. Not too many people in the world really know how to do it. And I should do something which is more than writing paper for publications. And I should really, I, I can do something more impactful for the world. And I had the option to open the company within academia, Weizmann Institute or other, but I decided to go to the Kitchen Hub incubator of the Strauss Group, which gave me the access to the product, to the consumers. I went to the partners of the Strauss Group, to PepsiCo and Danon, and my first collaborations were with them because I was very product-focused. So just a word about our platform. We have what we call the ProCube platform. The first step is the ProDesign AI CPD, Computational Protein Design. What we do in design is we say, given a structure that we want as to how it looks, what is a stability, what is a hypoallergenicity in others, what is a sequence of amino acids which will nurture this structure? Because a sequence determines a structure and the structure determines a function. And on one hand, we are inspired by amazing functionalities found in the wild, such as hypersweet proteins or other proteins needed for the food industry. And we're working also on other proteins which have nothing to do with sweetness for milk, meat, and plant applications. But on the other hand, these proteins usually grow in their own small piece of heaven, like 99.99% of all proteins. 
And the mass food market for protein is a health of an environment. So we need to bridge the gap between the environment of food and beverages and the process of producing it and the ability of the protein to survive therein. So with that, I thought, well, you do have life in hell. You have life in the Dead Sea. It's not dead at all. You have bacteria that can grow there. You have life in extremely acidic swamps. You have life in extremely hot places in the depth of the ocean or in Yellowstone hot springs. You have life in Antarctica. All of these are collectively called extremophiles. On one hand, we are extremely inspired by the amazing functionality of proteins found in the wild. On the other hand, we design new extremophiles, new proteins which mimic life in hell. And consequently, we made not only the sweetest protein in the world, but also we made the most stable sweet protein in the world. For example, in chewing gum, we go through 120 degrees for 10 minutes and still we remain intact. While most proteins, just like boiling an egg, they lose their structure and consequently they lose their functionality. So stability is a big issue and stability is not only short-term melting temperature, stability is also shelf life. It's also to be to continue and be functional in high acid, in high fat, in high salt, and um, in very difficult environments for a protein. Very interesting. So a lot of factors you took into account when designing your proteins, your unique proteins. So we're located in Israel, and uh, you mentioned a little bit of your origins in terms of startup and, and where you came from and out of the university. But what's unique about Israel in the food tech space? Israel by far became the food tech nation. Israel has the largest concentration of amazing, amazing, creative and groundbreaking startups. There's nowhere else in the world such a concentration. In the last um, Food Tech IL conference, which the Strauss Group um, did, there were 2,000 people. There was not a single big company in the world that didn't come to see what is going on in the Food Tech Nation. I've met the CEOs of most of the world's biggest companies, many of which come to Israel in order to sense what is food tech innovation. I once wrote a rap about the startup nation. It's two and a half minutes. I can give you a link to it. I can say it here, whatever you want. But I think that at the end of the day, there is a combination between people who really think out of their box. You have people who have our cross-disciplinary, like myself. You have a lot of um, amazing young age leadership talent that you gain in the IDF. I was myself a officer, and in many places, the fact that I, I got the, the first in my division to get the Director of Military Intelligence citation was much more important than my track record in academia, Weizmann, UPenn, and other places. So I think taken together, and you have here people who are not afraid to fail. When I told my parents that I'm leaving 18 years of academia and I'm going for a few months to be at home in order to think about how I'm going to build a startup and then build a startup, they thought I'm nuts. And probably in many countries, I mean, that's considered total nuts because I had already my position. I had my professor track. I had all of that. And I left all of it in order to go into a startup, which 95% of the startups fail. I knew I can go back, but I knew if one fails, I can go to another one. And happily, my startup is 
kicking. We are with 41 employees going to the market in less than nine months. So um, very happy about where we are today. My taste buds are telling me that you made the right decision. Great. What was the last thing you tasted? Peanut uh, butter. I tasted the peanut butter. This is coffee, you said? Yeah, this, this is coffee. How is the peanut butter? The peanut butter is good. Yeah. Um, we eat a lot of peanut butter at home. The consistency is a little bit more liquidy, mm-hmm. but it tastes really great. I can see this going well on a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So peanut butter, you have a big variety of different types as to texture and taste of peanut butters in the market. And we had a big dilemma which one to do. What happened is, interestingly, in our peanut butter, we checked it against a full sugar peanut butter, and we found out we, we removed half of the sugar, and then it was too salty, so we removed half of the salt, and then it was too fatty, so we removed 40% of the added fat. So we have a reduced sugar, salt, and fat peanut butter, which tastes just like the full sugar, salt, fat peanut butter. But peanut butter is definitely a, a matter of personal taste. By the way, one of our best products and you can taste it here as ketchup, where we have 70% less. So let's talk a little bit about patents, intellectual property. What role do patents play in your business strategy? Patents are perhaps the most important asset that we have in becoming a company. It's very nice to have an invention, and an invention is very good for prizes and for helping humanity. But unless you can protect it in a very comprehensive manner with patents, you will not succeed commercially. And if you will not succeed commercially, you will not have the funding in order to get there. So I think there is not anything that is more important than protecting us. And we, from day one, had a very bold and aggressive uh, strategy with patents. We began with a freedom to operate analysis of our competitive landscape. And we continued with having very comprehensive patent coverage of Number one, the product of process of the computational protein designs, a specific product, a specific sequences and sequences that are um, similar to them, and also applications over different categories of food for the formulation and the synergies that we have with other sweeteners and other bulking agents. All of this is covered with five families of patent applications. After the provisional patent, We go for the regular patent, the PCT stage, which we also register in Argentina, which is not part of the PCT, the uh, patent uh, treaty. And then we do the national phase. Unlike most companies that look in the world and in Israel and split it to US, EU, and the rest of the world, for us, the US is only 8% of the market. So we actually submitted our patent applications in 54 different countries paying a huge amount of money for a young startup, but we see no other way in order to move to the next uh, stages and really conquer the little blue planet that we all want to have a be sweet and healthy. Amazing. That sounds like a very extensive uh, patent strategy. And uh, I'm happy to hear that you're using the IP for your benefit, for the benefit of your company. Can you talk a little bit about funding? Yes. So uh, we began with uh, funding from the Kitchen Hub Incubator. I then got some funding from uh, friends and family, including my cousins, Don and Judy Vogt, who wrote uh, the most known biochemistry book in the world. So that also gave some credibility that people who understand biochemistry invested in my very good friend, Buddy Korn, who sadly died out of COVID, and some people who heard about us in the news. And then we went to a round. It was about to close a round in, in uh, the US, actually, and then COVID came, and it was more difficult to get money from outside. So we ended up with a round by uh, three Israeli VCs, including the Zora 
which is a impact fund, iAngels, iAngels led our, our uh, seed round, and Welltech Ventures, a wellness fund. They actually invested in us after we won the uh, Global Wellness Summit, where 84 startups from five different continents competed over who is has the highest wellness, and we won it, and then we got funding from them. We also got funding from the Singaporean government, SG Innovates, a small sister of Temasek, from Brad Bloom's uh, um, founder of uh, Berkshire Partners, from Aston Partners, from the Onassis Foundation in, in Greece and Liechtenstein, uh, from Dragones in Argentina, and from Japan Israel Venture Partners. Uh, so we have a, a good collection of very good investors, and from Sukden, that is the world's biggest sugar trader and from K3 Ventures of Singapore that is part of the family of the Quak families, the sugar points of Southeast Asia. So we have a good collection, and we are now in the Series A, where we are, it was already announced in Food Navigator, we are doing a pretty big uh, Series A, and we are now closing the deal with quite a few uh, very well-known funders, including our current funders. Ah, and one more very important investor is Baywa. Baywa is in, in the food value and ag value chain from Germany. So we have really investors from Europe, from the US, from Israel, from Latin America, and from Southeast Asia, which for me was very important, actually, after we were already oversubscribed. And we had requests from additional territories. I really wanted to get their funding, and we, for some, allowed to invest less than they wanted because we were already oversubscribed. But the issue is that we are really heading to all the territories on planet Earth, and it's very good to have well-connected investors in the different continents. Very impressive. You said that you're going to be out in the market soon. Are you going to be opening up new facilities for production? And if so, where and what scope? Yes. So next week, we are beginning to do um, 20,000 liters of fermentation, and this is in Southeast Asia. We are currently in touch with some facilities in Europe and in Latin America, and we are in touch with several partners in order to build a facility in Israel. We just had here, and, and we delayed this uh, meeting because we just had here a visit of the uh, councils aboard of the Israel Innovation Authority, which is part of the reasons that Israel became such a startup nation. And this was together with the Ministry of Finance and others all the board of the Israel Innovation Authority, including the CEO Dorbin and Ami Applebaum, the chair of the Israel Innovation Authority, and they funded us, including six different grants, including grants for production. And we're working very hard to build together with partners production ability in Israel. Right now, simply there is no good production, food grade production, um, microbial precision fermentation facility in Israel, but definitely more than 20% of the money that we're raising now is going for a, such a partnership. It's not our business and we don't have a competitive edge to build alone a facility. So we are looking for partners that can help us to expand their facility with a designated fermenter and purification site for us and also distribution later to the different consumers. So the type of uh, expertise that you're looking for is a pharmaceutical fermentation type? No, so... The pharmaceutical one, you need 99.999, I don't know how many nines percent purity. We actually, for us, it's enough to have 90% purity. It's a very different ball game, and consequently, the price per kilogram is very different. So actually, within biotechnology, you have four different sectors. 
most of the biotechnology in Israel historically is red biotechnology. Red biotechnology is pharmaceutical biotechnology. You also have some green agriculture biotechnology, and you also have some blue marine biotechnology. We are in the white biotechnology space, which is a commodity biotechnology, which is an industrial biotechnology. We need to make tons of material. Every kilogram replaces 3.4 tons on average, but we need to become a major player in, in all territories around the world. We are extremely sensitive to the techno-economics and to having a kilogram of our white powder in a very good price and to make huge amounts. So actually, the world's biggest microbial precision fermentation facilities are in Latin America. We are talking about 800,000 liters, 800 cubic meters. Often they are also close to sugar because for every cubic meter of fermentation, you need a few hundreds of kilograms of sugar that you feed the yeast. Obviously, later you get a sweetener that is so potent that you get much, much more, many orders of magnitude more sweetness than the feed that you gave to the yeast. We are going to be also a significant consumer of sugar in order to feed the yeast that is producing swilling for us. Okay, fascinating. Maybe we'll end with one question. What tips do you have for founders who are just thinking about starting their own idea and company? My number one tip to founder is not to listen to too many tips and rely on what is your gut feeling. Because I think that you have so many people who are advisors who will take their own life story and all have more experience than you have and will try to implement it on you. But there is no right way to do things. There are so many different ways. And what happened in one case study is not necessarily what will succeed in another case study. But after saying that, I think that with a large grain of salt, to surround yourself with an amazing, amazing team is extremely important. And if I can give from my own experience, so first of all, I had the option to open a my within academia, but I decided to open a my within a food tech incubator with multinationals behind me that could whisper to me and say what is important, what is not. I then understood that Strauss Group is a consumer packaged good company, but I need experience in ingredients. And I recruited the chair of the board, Richard Rick Grubel, who was the president of human nutrition and health in Royal DSM, the world's biggest biotechnology ingredient company. He was also the president of Monsanto Brazil and of Tyson International Business Development. And I got his brain and his networking and his abilities. And then I understood that I need more know-how in startups and in the financial world. And as part of my two directors in the board, I recruited Dr. Amir Gutman, who is actually a professor of entrepreneurial finance in IDC. And he and together Rick and Amir and I are doing a lot of the strategy. But then the other side of it is to always try and recruit people who are smarter than you. And we have really an amazing, amazing team. From our chief production officer, Yigal Gesundheit, who joined us when we had no money and for the first few months worked without money that we paid only after we got some funding. And he came to us from Teva Business Development in Teva, Rafa Labs, Vitamed, and himself was a CEO taking a product from university till it went to the market and uh, then came to us to be the first non-scientist person. He's also a pharmacist, so a lot of business development and pharmacy background or our VP of food technology, Sam Marco, who was a CTO of SodaStream, 
of Materna that brought to the world H-tiered infant formula and is now part of Nestle and of uh, Israel's biggest dairy, uh, director of AI CPD computational protein design, who is a professor of computational biology and did her PhD in Stanford, or something that is extremely, extremely important. I mean, the director of biotechnology who, who was uh, made beforehand already 150 products, including an industrial scale, the director of uh, regulatory and, and clinical clinical and regulatory affairs who already got a FDA approval for a product coming out of precision fermentation. I think one of the most important persons I um, recruited is actually the VP of people, and not Cerber. Many startups fail because people don't collaborate and there's tons of ego and we have a lot of very smart people. And I take people who tell me at least once a week that I'm stupid Otherwise, they're not good people. They need to highlight what I'm bad in. Anat came as a VP of people after working in international companies and abroad and in startups and in the uh, food ag industry. She is overlooking not only in the recruitment of amazing people, but also she gives a shadowing to managers because we have a lot of managers who are very good in uh, science but don't have enough managerial expertise. So I think the shadowing of managers and to learn how to work together is extremely important. So thank you very much, Elon. I appreciate that you took your time to show me around the facility, give me a taste of your protein products, and I'm very impressed and wishing you and your company lots of success. Thank you, Avraham. It was a pleasure to uh, podcast, and um, I hope to uh, have you back here in a couple of years. And we are now 41 employees. We are looking into quadrupling the number of employees, but also you saw some of the pilot production facilities and we are looking into building something much bigger and to become really a pipeline for production of designer proteins for the mass food market and to build here really a big company with many new designer proteins coming out and with the first product that swilling as something that is going to be in every household, the first tasty, healthy, sustainable and cost-efficient sweetener that we will all enjoy. So thank you very much, Avram. Wishing you and my proteins lots of success. That was Dr. Ilan Samish, the founder and CEO of Amai Proteins. We hope you enjoyed this episode. There are many more to come. Do you have a great innovation or startup idea? We'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to us by going to our website, jmbdavis.com. And if you go to jmbdavis.com forward slash startup, you'll see we have a special site specifically made for startups to help startups protect their innovations. Please be in touch with us and find out how we can help you. Thank you for listening. And we look forward to bringing you the next episode.